One of the most alarming trends we're seeing in teenagers these days is the prevalence of anxiety. If one of your kids or a teenager you know is struggling with anxiety, we are thrilled to share a brand new resource to help. The latest book from Rooted, Anxiety, Finding a Better Story. It's a 31-day devotional for teenagers written by mental health counselor and friend of Rooted, Liz Edrington. As a teenager, Liz felt overwhelmed by anxiety. Now that she's a mental health counselor, she wants to pass on what she's learned. Just understanding what anxiety is makes a big difference. But what makes an even bigger difference is understanding what God has to say about it. With daily scripture readings, breathing exercises, and additional mental health resources, this little book offers you comfort and help in your anxiety. See how your anxiety fits into the big story of your life and of the whole universe, and learn how Jesus can bring you peace. Order your copy of Anxiety, Finding a Better Story by Liz Edrington wherever you buy books, or purchase through the link in the show notes for this episode. You are listening to a talk recorded at the 2023 Rooted Ministry Conference in Franklin, Tennessee. While you listen, why not visit rootedministry.com conference to learn about the 2024 Rooted Conference in Dallas, Texas. So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Almighty God, we pray that by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit that we would see and hear, know and trust, love, worship, and glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. So have you ever had a movie that in some way changed your life? There was some insight, there was some self-discovery that occurred through watching this movie that created an inflection point of some sort in your life. Well, for me, I was not aware of it at the time, uh, but in a season where I was struggling with depression in my early 20s, There was a movie that somebody had me watch. The movie was Ordinary People, the 1980 Academy Award winner for Best Picture. In particular, there was a scene in the movie that was emblematic of a crossroads in my life. The movie depicts the story of a family whose teenage son has died in a drowning accident, and the younger son has witnessed his brother die. But the real story involves the two different ways that the mother and father are coping with their son's death. The father, Calvin, is openly grieving. 
He is tenderly trying to care for the younger son, Conrad, who has been traumatized by his brother's death. The mother, Beth, however, cannot enter into the pain. The mother is resisting. And the mother resents the younger son. She is freezing him out as if to say, I wish you were the one who had died rather than your older brother. And I want to share this scene from the movie, the father, where the father, Calvin, is encouraging the mother, Beth, and the whole family to go see a counselor together. He's encouraging them to talk about the brother's death. But what is really going on here is that Calvin is inviting his wife to grieve and to heal. not supposed to get something for his doctor, is he? I don't think so. I think we should go see him, Beth. Dr. Berger. What? I thought we could all go and see him together. Why? He thinks it's a good idea. Oh, he thinks it's a good idea? What does he know about me, about this family? I've never even met him. Exactly, that's the point. Wouldn't it be easier if we all talked about it in the open? About what? What are we going to talk about don't try to change me, Calvin. I don't want any more changes in my life. For God's sake, hasn't enough happened. Let's just hold on to what we've got. That is what this is for. Maybe you'll get a surprise. I don't want any surprises. I know I'm not perfect. And if I can't go around hugging everybody all the time the way you do, then I'm stop. not asking you to be perfect. You're missing the point. I don't want to see any doctors or counselors. I'm me. This is my family. And if we have problems, then we will solve those problems in the privacy of our own home, not by running to some kind of specialist every time something goes wrong. Are you folks ready to order? <clears throat> no, could you give me a couple of minutes, please? Sure. Thank you. Running to experts every time something goes wrong. I know you mean well. I want this to be a nice Christmas. I do, too. I want all of them to be nice Christmas. We need time together, Calvin, you and I. We have to get away. New Year's. We can spend some time in Houston with my brother and Audrey. You know, play a little golf. Relax. I've already talked to Mother about it, and Conrad can stay with them. Please don't worry about it. Please, for his sake, don't indulge me. We need time together. Okay? Okay. Okay. I love you. I love you too. Let's just give things time, okay? So as you can see, Beth resists the invitation to go down the path of grief, pain, and suffering. Beth wants to be happy. She says this a number of times in the movie. She wants the blessed life. She thinks that the pathway to the blessed life is to avoid pain and suffering. She thinks that the pathway to the blessed life is to deny reality, specifically the reality that her oldest child has died and that her family is falling apart through their suffering. 
So the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount paint a picture of the pathway to a blessed life. The word blessed, makarios in Greek, is repeated eight different times. And Jesus uses this literary formula to point his followers to a life of flourishing and blessedness. In the Greco-Roman world, the word makarios captured the concept of ultimate well-being, ultimate flourishing. But the Greeks thought that the pathway to blessedness was reserved for a very small group of people and that it quite honestly was hardly attainable in this life. The three groups of people that they considered blessed were first, the gods, because the gods lived in the heavenly realms and they were separated from the brokenness of this life. Second were the dead, people who had died and passed on to the afterlife and they were no longer subject to the pain of this world. And finally, the last group were elites, people who were so rich and so wealthy that they had the means to insulate themselves from the difficulties and the challenges of life on earth. So as you can see, the Greco-Roman concept of blessedness involved avoiding the difficulties of this life, removing oneself from pain and suffering and grief. And it was not much more than a tactical form of escapism. They saw that as the only viable path to finding happiness and flourishing. And what an absolutely hopeless notion of the blessed life. It is essentially on offer to nobody in the here and now. Well, Jesus punches this conception of the blessed life in the nose full force. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says that the gateway to joyfulness and the flourishing of the kingdom of God is through acknowledging our limitations as human beings and sinners. It's through confessing the depth of our sin. It's through lamenting the pains of our life and lamenting the pains and the injustices of this world. The Greeks took a path like Beth and ordinary people, while Jesus takes us down a path that's more like the one that Calvin is going down. And because of the grace of Jesus, Though it is a painful path, this path is a hopeful one. It's a path of healing and redemption. And so today, I want to look at the path of the blessed life that Jesus portrays in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. And I want to do it in three parts. First, the path down. Second, the path up. And third, the path out. And what we'll see in Matthew 5 is that this path, it's hard and it's painful, but that it is paved with the blood and the grace of Jesus. So first, the path down. So in the Old Testament, we see the literary form of a beatitude primarily in the wisdom literature. You are likely familiar with Psalm 1, uh, where it opens with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So in the Old Testament, the the primary understanding of the blessed life was a product of right living and a wise lifestyle. Obedience to God's law naturally resulted in a blessed life. So in the Greek thought, the blessed life came as a product of escaping the fallen world. In In the Old Testament or in Jewish thought, it primarily comes as a result of obedience. But here in this New Testament iteration of the blessed life of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says 
that entering into pain and suffering of our sins, our lives, and the world, that that is the first gateway in to the blessed life of the kingdom of God. First, we see in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are lowly and contrite. They have come to the end of their rope. They admit their limitations as human beings and as sinners. Coming to this recognition usually comes as a product of failure and disappointment and burnout and exhaustion. The poor in spirit see that they have no spiritual resources before the throne of a holy and just God. The first beatitude is similar to the first step of the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And then step number two is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So we see that step one, a recognition of powerlessness, of, of spiritual poverty, inherently leads us to a recognition of a need for God. So in verse three, the blessing that is promised is theirs is the kingdom of God. So the recognition of our spiritual poverty as a sinner leads us to seek the, generation of, the generosity of God for salvation. And hence, the poor in spirit experience a taste of heaven here and now in the kingdom. It's worth noting that both the first and the last of the Beatitudes both say theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of the promises in the eight Beatitudes are characteristic of a life in the kingdom of God, which comes through con- first through contrite recognition of need. So the second step on the path down comes in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning that Jesus describes here is functioning at multiple levels. First, it is functioning at mourning over our sins against God. We grieve that we have sinned against our maker and creator. How radical is this? The idea that if you're looking for satisfaction, that you introspectively dig into your sin, you uncover it, you feel it, you mourn the way that it has hurt you, has hurt others, and has damaged your relationship with the Lord. So you can look at parallels in this verse in Psalm 32. Blessed, the attitude, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So I was dying when I ignored my sin. I was dying when I tried to rationalize my sin and minimize it and, uh, and, and, and pretend like it was really not there. Then in verse five, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And the psalm takes on this new tone that flows out of confession of sin, of, of hopefulness and of life and of vitality. And so, friends, one thing I would say as we talk about wanting to be gospel-centered in our ministries, wanting to be effective, is that not talking about sin or minimizing sin in our ministries is shortchanging kids the opportunity to have the joy and the flourishing of life in Christ. 
So verse 4, it's not only talking about grieving our individual transgressions. This morning also involves lamenting the wounds and the pain that we have received and accrued as a product of the sin of the fallen world. It involves mourning our past traumas and our past disappointments and tragedies and taking them into the healing presence of Christ. It involves lamenting the atrocities that we see in the world, lamenting the slaughter of innocents in Israel and Palestine, lamenting the evil that has been done against people in the Ukraine, lamenting the insanity of school shootings. We mourn all of these things knowing that we will receive comfort through the grace of God. We go down this path of sorrow with confidence that in the embrace of God the Father is at the end of the trail. So verse five, our third step on the path down, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now as we accept our spiritual poverty and we mourn our sins, we become meek. This meekness is a humility uh, that, that is in relation to the way we view other people, but it is also a humility that results in a gentleness towards other. The promise of inheriting the earth has little to do with land or territory, but the promise here is that the meek and the humble will be exalted and will receive grace from the Lord, not as a product of our assertiveness or our will, but as a product of God's generosity. And so Jesus opens the door to the blessed life of the kingdom of God. And the path into the kingdom is one that involves feeling hard things. It's one that involves emotionally encountering our pain. It involves mourning and grieving and lamenting. It involves facing the depth of our sin and the ugly parts of our story. It involves the unpleasant conviction of realizing how we have hurt others through our sin. It involves grieving tragedies that have hurt us so badly. It involves tearing off scabs. It involves not turning a blind eye to injustice and oppression in the world, but instead prayerfully moving towards it. And as counterintuitive as it sounds, the path into the blessed life of hope, joy, peace, and love first involves feeling very hard We're here for that this weekend. We are here together with the help of God to lament those things, to feel those things, and to go into the healing presence of the Lord together. Let me tell you some bad news that you in the room know better than anybody else, and that is that most of our kids, in particular most of our teenagers, by and large, are walking down the path that death took in ordinary people. After the death of her son, you could describe Beth's life as a never-ending defense mechanism to numb her heart from the pain of losing her son. One could describe the lives of our young people as a perpetual exercise in numbing themselves through these diabolical smartphones and through maintaining streaks on Snapchat and mindlessly flipping through TikTok and furiously going through Instagram, this wretched social media, it functions to separate our kids from their heart. 
And a lot of us know this, that we observe kids that we care for who, because of this life of perpetual stimulation and numbing, we don't know if they ever feel anything. In addition to that, a lot of us see kids in our youth groups who live on a hamster wheel of overscheduling performance. They bounce from school to dance to travel baseball to ACT prep to the tutor to the point that they have no space in their life to feel anything. They have no relationship with their own heart. The activities that they themselves may have not even signed up for and that they feel trapped in function to create a massive barrier between them and the path down towards Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves as parents, if you're a parent, is does our child, does do our children have any space to feel anything in their lives? And pastors, we have to be very careful of this ourselves because we're just as tempted and just at risk with these phones. And for me, being a workaholic has been my drug of choice since I was eight years old. That's the primary way that I have worked to separate myself from hard feelings my whole life. And so how do we lead people on the path down? And then how do we get them on the path up towards Christ? And so that takes us to our second point, the path up. So we can see the path up most clearly in verse seven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And notice this language of hunger and thirst. This is a deep longing from the bottom of our hearts. It's from this depth of conviction and mourning that you come to a place where you hunger to be made right. And that's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here in verse seven. It's not so much talking about the righteousness that comes through justification by grace through faith, the imputed righteousness for salvation. He's talking more about a righteousness of being made right and being made whole at a number of levels. First, at the spiritual level, a hunger and thirst and coming to Jesus to make us right in our relationship with God, such that we trust him and we live under his love. At the moral level, coming to the Lord with our sin and repentance and asking the Holy Spirit to make us right so that we live a life of obedience to his call and to his law. At the emotional level, coming to Jesus with our wounds, with our baggage, and asking him to make us right, to make us whole, to heal us. And at the social level, coming to Jesus, begging him to make the world right and to use us as instruments of justice. So the good news here is that those who come to God will be satisfied. This is indicative. This is not subjunctive. It is not they may be right, they may be satisfied, they could be satisfied. It says they will be satisfied. And why do we have this confidence? Why do we have so much confidence that we will be satisfied? What well, is because of the blood of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Christ. That is how we know that when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be satisfied, we will be made right in God's time. And the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus as seen in the gospel that gives us this confidence. And so the path up is a lifestyle of seeing our need 
and looking up to Jesus Christ and his grace moment by moment, day by day. Now, given the ways that our young people are so numb because of overscheduling and the technologies and the number of factors that we talked about, how do we form kids who walk down the path into their sin and brokenness and then look up to Jesus for his grace? Now, obviously, this is not something that we can control. This is not something that we can, uh, we can effectuate through our effort and our determination. However, there is something that I think that we can do on a practical level uh, to lead kids in the right direction. Now, if you've ever looked at Rooted's vision statement, and I said it earlier tonight, it is to transform the culture of youth and family ministry so that every child receives grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated discipleship at church and at home. Have you ever wondered why we say both grace-filled and gospel-centered? It seems kind of unnecessarily repetitive. Your, your English teacher would strike the red ink on that one. Well, there's a deliberate redundancy in our vision statement. We can credit Charlotte Getz for this. By grace-filled, we are emphasizing the need to communicate the gospel in a way where it speaks into the tender places in a person's heart and the broken places in a person's life. Oftentimes, people think that what it means to be gospel-centered is that we accurately declare the fundamentals of the atoning work of Jesus, and that is absolutely critical. That is absolutely true. That is foundational to, um, to discipling kids. It's for them to know the truth of what the Bible says about what Jesus has done. And that's part of the meaning of what it means to be gospel-centered. And too often, preachers and teachers can reduce the gospel to something that is simply cerebral. It is simply an abstract proposition. I one term, one time, heard an interview with a famous preacher, an author and theologian who's big deal in the gospel-centered world, And uh, he said that the point of discipleship is to fill a person's head with so much knowledge of God's truth that ultimately one day it will go down to their heart and it will change them. And there's some validity to that. See, in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a part of it. Uh, Simultaneously, this is a, a pretty small view of how we proclaim the gospel. This is not how you awaken the hearts of a person who is totally numbed out through activity and stimulation. And the good news is that Jesus has much more to offer. An aspect to pastoring to young people and parents involves understanding and sympathizing with the pain and difficulties of their lives. Listening to children talk about the pressure that they feel to perform. Listening to them talk about the isolation they experience the fears they have about the future, the confusion they have about all of these atrocious things that are happening in the world, the doubts that they have about God, the tension that they feel with their mom or with their dad, the ways that they feel bonded to technology. An aspect of pastoring to parents involves listening to them and understanding the anxiety they feel about raising kids in this crazy world the thanklessness that they admit that they experience in their relationship with their kids, the powerlessness they encounter as they try to lead their kids in the right direction, 
the loneliness that they often feel as they feel like they're parenting all alone, and the regret that they often feel as they make mistakes. The gospel is not just a true proposition. It absolutely is that, but it is also the healing power of God for the brokenhearted. It is hope for the sinner who cannot get his or her act together. It is divine companionship for a person who is living on an island, and it is comfort and strength for the weary soul. It is hope for the person who is perpetually drowning in despair. The grace of love and God proclaimed in a human way, a compassionate manner to the struggling person that reaches into their heart. It holds their hand and it walks them on the path down and it leads them on the path up to Jesus. So the path down, it leads us into our sin and our pain. The path up leads us to Jesus. And then ultimately, Jesus through his grace, leads us on the path out. And the path out, that is our third point. This pattern of entering our sin and brokenness and then looking up to Jesus and his grace, God transforms us from the inside out into gospel people. In the next three Beatitudes in verses seven through nine, Jesus describes three attributes of the gospel person. The person for whom the gospel has transformed them in such a way that they just organically embody the grace of Jesus in the way that they relate to people and the way that they treat people. Trait number one, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This word for mercy, merciful, iliman, means deeply compassionate, deeply empathetic. The adjectival form of this word is used here in Matthew 5. It's also used one other time in Hebrews to describe the empathy of Jesus as the compassionate high priest. In its verbal form, it is almost exclusively used in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in a situation where Jesus is extending compassion to a person who is struggling. And so when it says that blessed are the merciful, it's talking about people who live with the mercy of Christ. And the only way that we can extend the mercy of Jesus to another person is for us to first receive the mercy of Jesus on our sin and in our brokenness. Second trait, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This purity of heart here involves both a moral and ethical purity And it also foundationally involves a pure love of the Lord God, which sanctifies us ethically. Out of love of God comes the opportunity to see his glory and intimate relationship with him. Trait number three, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. We do not want to understand peacemakers here in a dysfunctional, middle child, people pleaser kind of way. Here, Jesus talks about peacemaking as a person who pursues peace and shalom, particularly in broken relationships. A peacemaker is a person who enters into hard conversations, a person who is not afraid to engage in gentle confrontation for the sake of reconciliation. A peacemaker is a person who can sit down with with another 
and ask them, how are you really doing? And in listening to them, they can point them to reconciliation with God the Father. To be a peacemaker requires bravery. And peacemaking also requires a strength, a compassion, and a gentleness. It requires a humility. As a peacemaker is a person who is often making amends for the ways that they have mistreated other people. And so as we conceive of these three attributes all combined into one person, what we see is a gospel person, a person who is compassionate to those who are struggling, a person who has the radiant love of God such that they are morally righteous, a person of reconciliation who enters into broken relationships of all kinds for the sake of healing. But to be clear, verse 11 and 12 tells us that the spiritual forces of evil and the world hate gospel people. They will resist them, they will tear them down, they will mock them. And that is why Jesus offers this admonition. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He anticipates this response from the world and reminds us of our future reward in heaven. But still, gospel people, isn't that what we hope to be the fruit of our ministry? To see God form people who embody the mercy of Jesus in the world. What a dream to embrace, that our ministries, our families, our teams would be safe places of comfort for the wounded and the broken, and where all solutions are constantly pointing to Jesus and his grace is showering upon us. Now, in the scene that I showed you from Ordinary People, you can observe the pain in Calvin, at the end of the clip, his, when his wife resists talking about the death of their son, you can hear it in his voice when he says, I love you too, in a way where there's a quiver. There is a sense of, I'm about to cry. Because he, his, her response is resisting going to counseling and instead slapping a Band-Aid on the problem by saying, let's just go on a vacation. And furthermore, Beth cannot engage her son, who has survived. She cannot enter into his pain because she has never taken the path down. She cannot enter into her own pain. So as a product of that, she cannot enter into the pain of her son. She does not have capacity for mercy, compassion, and reconciliation because she has never taken that path herself. She's never walked down the path of grief and sorrow and lament so she can't be with others and help them walk down the path. I can identify with Beth. I spent a large part of my childhood uh, and of my college years trying to numb myself by working and studying and achieving all the time. I tried to resist dealing with a sense of inadequacy and rejection, a sense of alienation and isolation, that I harbored by just working all the time. So when I was in graduate school and I was a student teacher and I had a co-teacher who was struggling with depression and anxiety, the only thing I had to offer him was awful pep talks that basically encouraged him to pick himself up by his bootstraps. And when I was a first-year teacher in the inner city of Charlotte, North Carolina, 
And the first day of school, the teacher across the hall from me resigned. After the first day, I said, what a loser. And all I had to offer her was contempt. The only version of the gospel that I had really ever heard was the gospel that Jesus gets you out of hell. And it ends there. But there were two critical people who came into my life. One was my pastor, Mark Upton, and the other was my counselor, Gordon Bowles. And they talked about this gospel of grace for sinners, this gospel of grace for the brokenhearted, and I'd never heard this before. But more than that, they were gospel people who embodied the grace and the tenderness of Jesus. God, how did they get there? Well, God had taken them on the path down. He had led them on the path up, and now they were living on the path out. And through both their message, their presence, and their character, God changed my life. Gordon had me watch this movie clip during my first counseling session 20 years ago, as if to subtly say to me, there are two paths. You have been on Beth's path your whole life, and there is an option to go down another path. You can become an agent of healing and comfort, not because of some method you learn, but because of the Lord transforming your heart organically. And so during this season, Mark, my pastor, he asked me, and this is when I was really struggling with depression and anxiety and about to resign from my job nine weeks into school. And he said to me, Cameron, how do you feel about your co-teacher that you taught with last year? What do you think he needed to hear from you? And I was able to say he needed me just to be with him. He needed me just to listen to him. He needed me to just be compassionate. He did not need a pep talk. And he said, how do you feel about that teacher that you judged so harshly when she resigned after the first day? And I said, I feel compassion. I, I can identify with her. So the question for you as we open the conference is what path are you on? What are the means that you might be using to resist taking the path down? What are the tactics that you've historically used to resist entering into the sad chapters of your story or the despair that you might be feeling right now? And if you are on the path down, you are on the journey, what is it that you need from Jesus? What is the word that you need from the Holy Spirit to give you the strength and compassion to continue walking down and to continue looking up to Christ? Jesus invites all of us on the path down every single day. It is a hard path, but it is the only valid path. It's filled with redemption and healing in life. It's a path that always leads to Jesus, and it is the only pathway into the joy and the hope and the vitality of the kingdom of God here and now. And it is a path that enables you to be a person of grace, for the young people, and for the parents that are in your life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have been so gracious and tender to us 
Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would tear down our guards, that we might be open to your kindness and to your healing and to your work in our hearts. I pray that this would be a special two days, Lord. I pray that we would see you, I pray that we would encounter you, and I pray that we would all leave here brimming with the hope and the joy and the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. To register for Rooted 2024, visit rootedministry.com conference. Parenting has never been easy, and in a sea of information, it's hard to find the gospel-centered, Bible-saturated resources you can trust. Whether you're a pastor serving in family ministry or a parent in the thick of raising kids, Rooted Reservoir Family Discipleship was created to equip you to disciple the teenagers in your life. We're excited to add three new courses this September. The first one, Pornography and Parenting. The second, on the spiritual and psychological development of children. And the third, on Navigating Technology, that talks about girls and social media and boys and video games. Join us today by visiting the curriculum section on our website, rootedministry.com.